Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast, providing quick and innovative ways to make the absolute most out of your research time and creative ideas for sharing and displaying your family history. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 101 of the Genealogy Gems podcast. Yep, we're in the hundreds. We've had a lot of fun in our last episode celebrating hitting the triple digit milestone. That's pretty cool. (laughs) I'm enjoying this. And we've been busy around here at Genealogy Gems. Uh, If you have the free Genealogy Gems toolbar, then you got an instant alert this last week on two great deals that came up. Uh, One was that Ancestry opened up their military records for free in honor of Veterans Day here in the U.S. for about four days, I think. And the other was about a spontaneous sale that we had here at Genealogy Gems at our Lulu store at lulu.com. It was uh, 40% off all the goodies that we have there, my book, the webinar recordings, and the archived premium shows that are kind of bundled together in packages of 10 episodes. And that was all in celebration of the newest bundle of archived episodes, which we just published, which uh, cover episodes 31 through 40. And again, those are all available still, of course, at our Genealogy Gems Lulu store. I just love the toolbar because it allows me to get the word out to you real short and sweet so that you can take advantage of uh, opportunities that come up along the way. And of course, get the news out to you. And speaking of the news, um, there's been a lot of genealogy news lately. Um, Last week, I ran two polls, did some surveys, if you will. Uh, As I get into planning for 2011, I really want to make sure that you're getting what you need here from the podcast. So our first poll, which was in the most recent Genealogy Gems e-newsletter, was asking you about what your favorite gems are here on the podcast. And here are the results, starting with your favorite, which was Google for Genealogy slash Research Gems. 56% of responders say that those are their favorites. And then coming in at 31% are interview gems, where I'm talking with genealogy experts and celebrities. And then bringing up the rear pretty much in a dead heat at about 5% each were listener gems, the mailbox, uh, sharing gems, displays and crafts, and genealogy news. So this confirmed what I thought as well. And it's not that I'll be changing or getting rid of anything, but it just helps me keep my focus on what's important and kind of make some decisions if we have to have it come down to, you know, editing something out due to time constraints. I kind of know what your priorities are as well. Even more interesting, though, were the comments that I got along with the poll. Several listeners echoed what Mary in Arizona wrote. She says, I like them all. <laughs> and that pretty much summed it up. And and I have to say, I do too. I like them all. So thanks to all of you who participated. And I hope in the future that when you do see a poll in the newsletter, don't be shy, but go ahead and click on the link. And uh, that's your chance to let me know what you think and what you'd like to hear on the show. And I'm keeping these polls extremely short and to the point. Uh, They're not going to take up a bunch of your time. And you always have the opportunity to include your comments, which I read every single one of them. Uh, I also ran a poll on the Genealogy Gems podcast Facebook fan page. For those of you on Facebook, we did that last week. It was, again, just one quick question. 
What's your opinion on the ideal length of a Genealogy Gems podcast episode? This was prompted by a podcaster forum that I belong to, and all of these podcasters were chiming in on what they thought the ideal length of an episode was. And interestingly, a lot of them were coming up with five to 10 minutes max. Well, that really surprised me. <laughs> I was kind of, I was like, really? Five to 10 minutes? Because frankly, I shy away from short podcasts like that simply because you have to constantly switch episodes if you're out there, you know, taking a walk for 45 minutes. Uh, if it's only five to 10 minutes, you're you're constantly cycling through and, and trying to switch podcast episodes. And I certainly can't read that iPod touch screen without my reading glasses. So <laughs> I am up a crick when I'm out walking. There's there's no reading the screen. It, it's great if it just is one long continuous um, episode. So it seemed to me that rather than podcasters asking each other, I thought I would ask, oh, I don't know, say, perhaps my listeners. <laughs> I know it's a wacky idea, but you know me. And many of you responded loud and clear. You want at least 30 minutes and 45 minutes is even better. Um, but the largest response was the last option that I had there in the list of options. And that was, I'll take as long an episode as Lisa is willing to do. So I think we are on track with the episode length. I know that I don't stick to a strict length, you know, for the podcast, but I'm afraid if I do, I'm going to miss either having something important on the show or on the other hand, just, you know, filling airtime if we've said all there is that needs to be said. So I'm really looking forward to preparing for episodes that are going to wrap up uh, this year of 2010 and launch us into the next and uh, hopefully are delivering you what you're looking for. And I definitely appreciate your help with all of that. So thanks so much for participating in those, um, those surveys. And I'm going to have a couple of more. So keep your eyes out. I definitely want to hear what you think. And uh, right now we are going to launch into the genealogy news. First up, the folks at Family Tree Magazine are once again, recognizing genealogy blogging excellence with the Family Tree 40 Genealogy Blog Awards. They're accepting nominations of great genealogy blogs through Tuesday, November 30th of 2010. It's coming up quick. And um, you can go to now I'm going to say I'm going to read this out, but I'll have it also in the show notes for you. You go to surveymonkey.com slash s slash v w j z h k c yes i'll have that in the show notes for you you can nominate as many blogs as you want in the following eight categories we've got local slash regional history and genealogy heritage groups research advice and how to cemeteries my family history everything blogs new blogs, and technology. And I am very proud to say that I have been asked to be part of the expert blogger panel this year, um, along with Randy Seaver of the Genia Musings blog, Dear Myrtle, and Thomas McKenty of Genia Bloggers. We helped kind of formulate and put together these categories and qualifications, and you can find all of that information at the Family Tree Magazine website. And of course, again, I'll have a link to the post that I did on this whole project from the Genealogy Gems news blog. I'll have that for you in the show notes. 
I think it is so great that they are acknowledging all the great work that people are doing out there. And certainly, we heard from a lot of you in our last episode who are now also blogging. So if you think you've got the right stuff and you're out there blogging, you might want to encourage your readers to nominate your blog. Voting on the Family Tree 40 finalists is going to take place from December 13th to the 20th. The uh, Family Tree 40 blogs will have five finalist blogs in each category. Also in the news was the first ever Family History Expo in Atlanta, Georgia in November 2010. Congratulations to Holly Hansen and her team. You know, they are really branching out, which is exciting to see. And after the holidays, things are going to be picking right back up again. First up is going to be the Mesa Family History Expo, January 21st and 22nd of 2011 at the Mesa, Arizona Convention Center. And I am also very excited to announce that I have been asked to be the keynote speaker to kick off the new season. So I will be the keynote at the Mesa, Arizona Family History Expo. The theme for 2011 is teaching old dogs new tricks. So I have to come up with a creative way to call the audience old dogs without offending anybody. (laughs) But I'm up to the task and I'm really looking forward to it because the Mesa Family History Expo is always such a blast. She's been doing it for a couple of years and it hums like a top and it's so much fun. So I hope that you will consider joining us for the two days of genealogy education and fun where you're going to learn about researching your family history from a bunch of different expert speakers and be able to try out the latest genealogical tools in the exhibit hall. So put it on your calendar. Again, it's January 21st and 22nd. And early registration is just $65 for the two-day event. It is such a deal. (laughs) And registration at the door will be $75. And also speaking of educational opportunities, the New England Historic Genealogical Society is going to be putting on their winter weekend research getaway, Effective Use of Technology. That's coming up January 27th through the 29th of 2011, and will include educational lectures, an overview and tour of their extensive research center, and personal consultations with the NEHGS experts. The specific theme for this event is geared toward the utilization and effectiveness of using technology in the research process. Of course, we love that. The Winter Weekend Research Getaway, Effective Use of Technology, again, is January 27th through the 29th. It's Thursday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the New England Historic Genealogical Society. They're in Boston, Massachusetts, and you can get more information at AmericanAncestors.org. Next, we have some news, of course, from Ancestry.com. People have been speculating about uh, Ancestry's purchase of iArchives and what it's going to mean for Footnote.com and, of course, their subscriptions. Well, Footnote released this statement uh, not too long ago when the sale officially closed back in October of 2010. It says here, as we join forces with Ancestry.com, there is a huge opportunity to leverage each other's strengths and move each other faster towards our goals. You may be curious about how this deal affects members of Footnote.com. The plan is to continue to run Footnote.com the way we have always run Footnote.com. 
okay, I've said that a couple times, uh, continuing to do what we believe is best for our customers, our business, and our brand. So we'll see if that's the way it plays out. But for now, it appears that uh, not much is going to change for the end user, and they are, will continue to be footnote.com. <laughs> so uh, keep, keep tuned in on that. We'll, we'll keep an eye on it and see if anything does uh, change. But it's uh, hopefully it just means more resources for everybody. Also recently, Ancestry.com, in collaboration with the United Kingdom website, thegenealogist.co.uk, announced that an agreement has been reached with the National Archives of the United Kingdom to acquire and publish online the 1911 England and Wales census. So according to their press release, the two family history companies will work together to transcribe the 1911 census creating a searchable database which enables users to type in a name and go directly to the full-color digital image of the actual census document, handwritten in their ancestors' home a century ago. The complete set of 1911 census records will go live on Ancestry.com by county, starting in late 2010 and completing in 2011. And finally, they have announced that Family Tree Maker for Mac, which they say combines intuitive tools with robust features and flexible options. A dynamic user interface and integration with Ancestry.com makes it simple to create family trees, record memories, and organize photos, videos, and audio clips, plus share ancestors' stories. It's even possible to explore family migration paths by viewing timelines and interactive maps that highlight events and places in ancestors' lives. You can read more about that at the Genealogy Gems blog. I will have a link for you in the show notes to the particular post that I gave all the details on the new Family Tree Maker for Mac. And of course, to get to the show notes for this episode, just go to genealogygems.com, click podcast in the menu and follow and click the links to episode number 101. Next in the news, we have the National Archives and Records Administration here in the U.S. announcing that new options are now available for reproductions of National Archives holdings. According to their press release, NARA has explained the formats available to members of the public who wish to purchase copies of records from its holdings. Copy options for immigration and naturalization records, land files, military service and pension records, court records, World War I draft registration cards, Native American records, census pages, and many other archival documents now include the possibility of purchasing a digitized version. The per-image fee for digital copies is the same as the per-page fee for paper copies. In addition, NARA now offers digitized duplication of its microfilm holdings at an increased per roll rate. The digital copies that result from this new service, they are delivered via CD or DVD, depending on the size of the file. In most cases, the files are provided in a PDF format. So if you're looking to order copies of NARA's holdings, including copies now available in digital form, you can use one of the following methods they have listed here. First, you could visit the National Archives online ordering system. That's at eservices.archives.gov slash order online. Second, you could download the appropriate form from the nara.gov website, and I'll have, of course, a link to that in the show notes for you. 
For microfilm orders, researchers can use the online ordering system, and you can download a paper form also at their website. And the third option is to contact the National Archives through the archives.gov contact form on their website. Next, we're going to check in at FamilySearch, and they have recently announced, yes, again, more new completed projects. Um, these include, in Canada, the Montreal Parish records spanning 1800 and 1900. Uh, over in the UK, they've got Bristol Parish records. Let's see here. It says Part F, 1837 through 1900. They have nonconformist registers for Bristol pre-1900, and that's a Part A of that project. And they also have parish records from Bristol, 1837 through 1900, Part E. So E and F, those two parts. Then out of Manchester in the UK, they've got parish records from 1813 to 1925. Then as we head over to Victoria, Australia, you can find probate records 1853 to 1989. And here in the U.S., they have Arkansas County Marriages 1837 to 1957. It looks like that's one of many parts of that project. And for the 1930 federal census, um, they have records for Alabama, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Texas, and Virginia. Military records, you're looking at World War II draft registration cards from 1942. Those have been updated for Delaware and Ohio, and an index to the War of 1812 pension applications, 1812 through 1905. And then there's a bunch of new marriage records. We're looking at DeKalb County, Indiana, Dearborn County, Indiana, both 1811 through 1959. County marriages in Oklahoma from 1891 to 1959. Uh, that's part A of, a of an ongoing project. They're also working on some county marriages for California, 1850 through 1952. Marriages from Delaware County, Indiana, 1811 through 1959, and county marriages for Texas, 1837 to 1977. And of course, recently completed projects um, have been removed from the available online indexing batches. And so now they're going to go through a final completion check process, and they'll be published at beta.familysearch.org in the very near future. They've also launched some new projects in the last month, some things to look forward to. More records out of Bristol, also county marriages out of Arkansas and California. Those are ongoing projects. Um, so a lot of continuing parts of some of the ones they've already completed. I think you're going to just they're, keep moving on. <laughs> it's nice to see. They're doing a lot of great work over there. And FamilySearch has also recently published its first digital Chinese collection, along with additional digital image collections from Belgium, Germany, Guatemala, Mexico, the Netherlands, Philippines, and Puerto Rico. 20 million additional indexed records were also published for Civil War and Revolutionary War collections and the 1851 census for England and Wales. You can search all those records at beta.familysearch.org. And of course, we got to check in with the Library of Congress, and I got a notice from them that I want to let you know about. It says here, thanks to a completely redesigned search system at loc.gov slash finding aids. 1,100 finding aids will now smoothly lead remote and on-site researchers to more than 32 million archival items in the manuscript, music, American folk life, 
prints and photographs, motion picture, broadcasting and recorded sound, and other Library of Congress research centers. The finding aids application is supposed to be more intuitive and allow you to easily research across the scope of the different divisions of the library. It says here, cleaner, more powerful displays help visitors search and browse through the finding aids. Each finding aid progressively describes the parts of an individual collection, summarizes the overall scope of the material, conveys details about the individuals and organizations involved, and notes the conditions under which the collection may be accessed or copied. That's always the important part when you're dealing with the Library of Congress. Links are provided also to related digitized content when it's available. Better keyword access to all library finding aids as well as to the contents of individual documents lets users see their search results in context. Users can start a search on almost any page, making search refinements easy and eliminating the need to click back to a search page to conduct a new search. Now, I spent a bit of time on the site after this announcement came out, and I'll be honest, I still find it a little bit challenging <laughs> to find what I'm looking for. But one thing that I really did like was the ability to search for my search terms in context. So for example, I did a search on the town of McMinnville, Oregon, but it wasn't clear how McMinnville was associated with all the different results that I got. Well, thankfully, they have this new link at the bottom of each result, and it says show search terms in context. And when you click on that, you get just that. It gave me a snippet of text showing the item related to my McMinnville search word, so you could see where it fell in context of that item. It worked very nicely. And for those of you down under, there's been a bit of Australian genealogical news. The National Library of Australia has launched a new version of their Australia Trove website and a user forum. You can find that at trove.nla.gov.au. And this definitely looks like a treasure trove of great stuff, including lots of Australian newspapers for those of you with Australian ties. And of course, we got to check in on Google Earth, see what's new. They've got some updates. The Google Earth and Maps imagery team has just released another extensive batch of aerial and satellite images. This time, they were in honor of the U.S. holiday Veterans Day, which we just celebrated on November 11th. And they focused on the location of several historic military museums, which I thought was kind of neat. Like um, they did an update on the naval ships on display at the Baltimore Maritime Museum in Baltimore, Maryland. Historic ships that you can zoom in on and see up close in Google Earth. They include the last sail-only warship, the USS Constellation. Um, the submarine, the USS Torsk, which sunk the last enemy ship in World War II and the cutter USCGC Taney, the last ship still floating that fought during the Pearl Harbor attack. And they've updated the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. You can see a restored Saturn V-1 moonshot test vehicle and the A-12 Oxcart Blackbird spy plane. If you want to go check that out on Google Earth. You'll also find high-resolution aerial updates in the U.S. for Baltimore, Cedar Rapids, Huntsville, Long Island, Reading, Springfield, Illinois, St. Joseph, Missouri, as well as some updates in Austria, 
Finland, um, several cities in Ireland, including Galway, Limerick, and Waterford, and Vasco, Spain. And there are too many high-resolution satellite updates to even mention here. So it's a good time to check back in on some of those locations where you might have been having some trouble getting a good view in Google Earth. Check back and see if things are a little bit clearer. Uh, You might have some good luck. And if you want to get a complete picture of the updated imagery, I've got a KML file that you can actually download and view it right in your own Google Earth program that shows you all the updates. So check that out in the show notes. And let's wrap up with another bit of good news. Here in the U.S., the television show Who Do You Think You Are is definitely on for a second season and is doing some shooting already for part of an episode at the State Archives in Trenton, New Jersey, as I understand it. USA Today's Gary Levin uh, reported that NBC is beefing up its reality series fare, including the celebrity genealogy show Who Do You Think You Are, which will return to their Friday lineup, according to this report, on January 21st of 2011. So that's good news indeed, and we like good news. And I've got more good news, and that comes from you, and that's coming up in the mailbox. Well, since the 100th episode was published, more congratulations messages have been coming in. Uh, It's wonderful to hear from all of you. Longtime listener Richard Yale wrote, I'd also like to congratulate you on your 100th episode of Genealogy Gems podcast. I have listened to them from the start and have learned a lot. I've had the opportunity to correspond with you often and have always received a timely and informative response. I was also fortunate to meet you in Redding, California last year. Here's hoping that the podcast continues for several hundred more episodes. Well, I'm with you, Richard. I hope so, too. (laughs) That's the plan. And another friend of the show and genealogy blogger chimed in. Uh, This is from Joan Miller. Congratulations on your 100th episode of Genealogy Gems. Thank you for everything you do for the genealogy community. I look forward to enjoying many more Genealogy Gems podcasts. And another longtime listener, Pat Dalpaez, wrote in to say that the episode made her feel a bit nostalgic. She says, Lisa, I just listened to your 100th episode with great nostalgia. Can something so young and years still create nostalgia for breaking a milestone such as this? Yes. It was great fun listening as you went over the highlights as you saw them. I was especially surprised to hear that long ago phone call I made as one of your audio clip gems made me miss my grandfather all over again. Thank you for including it. I did notice how many callers mentioned blogging thanks to your encouragement and lessons. I wonder if that might be an an interesting survey. How many people started blogs directly thanks to your influence in genealogy gems? I know I did. I thought you might be interested to know that the blog I started, thanks to you, just celebrated its third birthday. In November of 2007, I started my family blog as a means to share information about our family history in an easy-to-take manner, thanks to your encouragement. In December of the same year, I began to blog for my husband's family. It has been my goal to post to each blog weekly, and I'm proud to say that I now have 399 posts between the two blogs since 2007. For anyone still wavering, it's not as difficult as it sounds to come up with something weekly to share. 
At my family's request, the blogs are private, or I'd be happy to share the address. But I thought you'd like to know that your hard work on the last 100 episodes has created 399 blog posts out there in the cloud. Thank you for everything you do to encourage us on a regular basis with your sensible yet innovative gems. Oh, Pat, that is so nice. Thanks to everyone who wrote in and were so kind and encouraging. Thank you so much. It sure keeps me motivated to get that next 100 episodes out. Next, I have a question here from Claudia. She writes in, since I haven't Google Earthed yet, has the topic of real estate meets and bounds legal descriptions come up? I'm wondering if there is a central resource that can convert a legal description into a street address. I have a few deeds to track down and thought about starting with title companies. I've located the lot and block numbers on plat maps, but can't find an overlay of a street map. But it was interesting, before I could reply to Claudia's email, she wrote back. She says, boy, I couldn't have asked a more appropriate question of a more appropriate person. I am through the first DVD, she's talking about Google Earth for genealogy, and I have found my answer. Not that my ancestor's parcel has a street view or even a street address yet. Still vacant farmland with no buildings or roads, even 140 years later. But I have a few others I can look up and we'll see what they produce. Thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. Yes, the answer is in the DVD volume one. <laughs> so there you go. And Michael Stills also wrote in about Google Earth for genealogy. He says, I have very much enjoyed learning about GLO Records and Google Earth. And he's talking about the Bureau of Land Management's website. He says, I went back to the site yesterday and discovered that they had enhanced their website at glorecords.blm.gov. And Michael is absolutely right. They are upgrading some things over at the Bureau of Land Management website. So it's going to look a little bit different now than it does in the DVD, but that's okay because it's getting even better. It's nice to see them working on it. Uh, Michael goes on to say, thank you so much for a great program. I have been plotting my family's birth, marriage, death, burial, land patents, etc. It has been very revealing and helpful in suggesting new places to look for more information. That is the key, Michael. That was the whole idea. So if you want to check out what Claudia and Michael are talking about and learn all about Google Earth and how to use it for genealogy, um, you can head on over to googleforgenealogy.com. And you will find the first two volumes of the DVD series, Google Earth for Genealogy. Uh, I say first two because <laughs> I think there's another one brewing in my head. <laughs> we'll see. I have some ideas about that. But volume one and volume two are going to keep you real busy. They're about an hour and a half worth of videos each broken up into about, you know, 15 minute segments. And here's the good news. Now through Cyber Monday, we're getting ready for holiday shopping, right? Now through Cyber Monday, which is the Monday after Thanksgiving, we are running our first ever sale on the Google Earth for Genealogy DVDs. If you order now through the end of the day on November 29th of 2011, you're going to get free shipping. And that saves you about $2.50 per DVD. So whether you buy one or 10, doesn't matter stock up for your genealogy society, shipping is on me. So that's free. And that is uh, going to be again through Monday, November 29th, the end of the day that day on 2011, you'll get free shipping on Google Earth for genealogy. Next up, I have a um, email here. This is from Scarlett. And she writes in, 
about a conference that she recently attended. It was all about Polish research. She says, I wanted to let you know about the Polish conference I attended. For those folks listening to your podcast and reading your emails who have Polish roots, they should definitely consider attending next year. While at the conference, I met an author who taught a class on their book and then signed copies. I saw a traditional Polish dance or two, which was so fun. And there was a message board stating surnames being researched by the attendees, which made for a great icebreaker. I always get a kick out of going to meetings because I am nearly always the only person there under age 40. I'm 26 years old. I'm a genealogist in training. I learn a lot from the folks who've been at this task as long as I have been alive, though. (laughs) I'm looking forward to your Whittier California event in January of 2011. Well, thank you, Scarlett. That sounds like so much fun. Um, And how cool that they... There are conferences out there for everyone, aren't there? Uh, And it's wonderful when you have something very specific. In fact, I have a friend, Sandy, who went to that Polish conference as well. Um, So definitely, you know, you might put a Google alert out there. If there's a particular area where you want to do research, you could put a Google alert in for the type of research like Polish research conference. And you'll get notifications if a conference comes up in your specific research area. Robert just wrote in, he says, just to let you know, I am a relatively new listener to your Genealogy Gems podcast, and now also your Genealogy Made Easy podcast as well. Being in the over 50 crowd and not very tech savvy, I had my daughter help me, and now I am busy catching up on all the episodes. I routinely listen to them when I go on my daily runs through my iPhone. What a wonderful resource, and I cannot begin to thank you enough. I haven't gotten around to doing it yet, but I will join and become a premium member as well. I plan to write an article for our local Genealogy Society newsletter so that others will discover the joys that your podcast have brought me over the last six months. Thank you so much, Robert Heaton of Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada. Well, Robert, that is great news. Wonderful to have you on board. Thank you so much for writing. Thank you so much for sharing the podcast with your Genealogy Society. I mean, it's a Great free resource and certainly would help anybody who belongs to a society. And I I really appreciate you getting the word out. And perhaps I will be seeing you soon because I'm very happy to announce that I'm going to be speaking at the Alberta Genealogical Society Conference, April 16th and 17th of 2011 in Edmonton, Alberta. I am very excited about this conference. My first time up there to Edmonton. It's going to be a great conference. They've got the forensic genealogist Colleen Fitzpatrick, renowned Canadian research expert Dave Obie, and many, many more wonderful speakers. You can get all the scoop at abgensoc.ca, abgensoc.ca. And I hope to see many of you there at the Alberta Genealogical Society Conference. And finally, Suzanne wrote in asking about becoming a certified genealogist. She says, I have a few questions that might be a good episode or segment for a podcast. How do you make that leap from family historian to certified genealogist? How do you become a professional genealogist? What is the certification process? What courses are out there? What degree programs? Plus, what do you need to look for if you want to hire a professional genealogist? What does a certified genealogist really do? All of those are great questions, and we're going to tackle the first couple of questions coming up in our first gem, and that is right after this from Roots Magic. 
Root's Magic 4 has been completely rewritten and is now even more powerful and makes building your family tree easier than ever. I love it. With Root's Magic, you can add unlimited facts, find anyone in your database with lightning speed with Root's Magic Explorer, quickly and easily create perfectly formatted sources with the Root's Magic Source Wizard, create customized reports, and best of all, you can now take Roots Magic wherever your research takes you with the Roots Magic to go, which lets you run Roots Magic directly off your flash drive. And Roots Magic makes it a snap to share your family history, publish a book, create stunning wall charts, shareable CDs, even generate websites automatically from your data. To download your risk-free trial of Roots Magic 4, head to rootsmagic.com. See why professionals and beginners alike choose Roots Magic at rootsmagic.com. Genealogy Gems Premium member, then you have probably already listened to the most recent premium episode, which featured professional genealogist and private investigator Alvi Davidson. He's also a member of APG, the Association of Professional Genealogists, and very active with that organization. And I am very happy to say that after we wrapped up our conversation about how genealogy and private investigation can collide and really help each other in their efforts. Uh, it's, it was a fascinating interview. I, I hope that you guys will check it out in the premium episodes because he really had some great ideas and he had some wonderful insight into some of those um, people finder websites that you find online. But when we wrap that up, I thought I, I couldn't let him go without talking about the kinds of questions that Suzanne Strickland wrote in about, which is all of his work with the Association of Professional Genealogists, the fact that he has been one himself and has many tips and ideas on how, if you're interested, you might get started. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Alvy Davidson. When you and I first met out in uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, we were at the FGS conference and um, you had told me about your work with the APG Tell us a little bit about that. Um, I get emails quite often from listeners who wonder, you know, should I become accredited? What's the process? How do I decide? How do you advise the genealogist who really wants to take it to the next step and and go professional? First of all, uh, APG is a member-only organization. It is not any sort of an accreditation or certification organization at all. We are a membership organization of about 2,200 members worldwide. And by being a member of APG, you're, you get to associate with people who are also professional genealogists. Some aren't, but most of them are. And you can uh, touch base with them. You can pick their brain. They can pick your brain. You can begin to learn how other people do certain things. Uh, I watched an, an email today explaining to me the new techniques for finding New York census. Wow, I might not have ever known that if I had not have been a member of APG because it came through on the APG mailing list. 
this is all a part of some of the blessings that you get by being a member of APG. I've been a member for probably 15 years now. I've been on the board of directors of APG for, I'm in my fourth two-year term after skipping one, one term, and I love it. I've been so blessed with my association with them and how that I share with them, they share with me. Now, that brings to mind, you know, there are people who are professional in the sense that they are paid to do genealogy research for people, um, or those of us who are, are professional in the sense of somehow genealogy plays into our career. Does a person need to be accredited in order to be a member of APG? Could anybody listening to the show join the organization? Anyone who is, is involved in the field of genealogy, you don't really have to be, but anybody can become a member of APG. All you have to do is to sign an agreement that you will abide by their code of ethics and you will not take money for work not performed. Uh, we do have an ethics board of our APG that oversees such things as this. Anybody can join APG that would like to join APG, and we encourage them if they are interested in genealogy, if they are wanting to further their field of genealogy, go out, launch out into the field as a full-time professional, whether you're a speaker, a writer, a librarian, or just an ordinary, everyday genealogist. Join them as an APG and learn from others of like interest. That sounds like a great tip right into itself is that hopefully now that's clarified because I think many people do have the misconception that they somehow have to be accredited or have to be doing it full time or whatever. But it sounds like, um, you know, joining an organization like this can really be one of the first steps that you take as you're making your decisions about how you might like to pursue it. Um, professionally in whatever way, as you said, there's what's exciting is there are so many different ways for a person to professionally be involved in genealogy. Um, do you, I know that you don't uh, credit, you know, people who you don't have a program. Where do you direct people who would like to become certified as a genealogist? Um, what are some of their options? Well, there are two organizations that have, uh, a, a judging board, or so to speak. One is the association, I mean, the, the uh, Board for Certification of Genealogists, which is located in Washington, D.C., and their website is very easy to find, bcgcertification.org. And then there is the organization that is in Utah, uh, the ICAPGEN, and don't ask me to explain what those initials mean. <laughs> they, are, they were started by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I have a number of friends who are uh, accredited, or AGs as they call them, accredited uh -huh. colleges, and in some respects, they're pushing for their accreditation maybe even more strict or stringent than the board for certification is, but I've never taken there, so I can't really say uh, for a fact. But I do know that becoming a certified genealogist takes a lot of work and a lot of uh, tenacious looking for the right information, then passing the certification requirements and laying down the necessary groundwork to eventually be judged worthy of the initials CG after your name. Exactly. Now, I'd love to have you also give people an idea because, again, there's confusion about uh, whether when we see a course for certification, 
do you know when a person takes a course like that at the end do they get handed their certificate and they're now a CG or is that just a preparatory course for then taking a test there are a number of prep courses but none of them is any kind of uh guarantee that you're going to become certified from taking that course there are two or three uh, now i think there's three schools of teaching one of them is in birmingham alabama at the um, samford university's institute on genealogical and historical research known as igr and then the one is in washington dc is the nigr national institute on genealogical research they recently started one in boston massachusetts and the mover and shaker up there is Dr. Tom Jones. And that, again, neither one of these gives you any kind of leg up on being assured you're going to get certification after you do that. You still have to meet the criteria established by the Board for Certification by being able to do a process that they lay out to you. Uh, so you will be able to show them you know exactly what you're doing they give you certain things to, to transcribe, to uh, give back to them in the same manner which they expect, and they look over your work, and if it meets the criteria, if you've done what they've asked you to do, then they will tell you that you have been certified. You will be certified for a period of five years. And each year, each five years, you have to do similar work all over again and show the board that you are pursuing your uh, certification process through those five years. Right. Now, sometimes when we meet genealogists at conferences, you know, they hand us their business card and we see more than just CG after their name. Can you give us the rundown? What are some of the options, what this alphabet soup means after the names? And are they all certified or professional genealogists? Well, the CG and CGL, a certified genealogical lecturer, and I believe there's one more, but I don't have it right on the top of my head. A certified genealogical lecturer would be someone like uh, Elizabeth Schoen Mills, where she has proven that she's a qualified lecturer, or Elissa Powell in Pennsylvania. These people have qualified as a lecturer. They may have CG and CGL following their name. Of course, we have other people, such as Dr. Tom Jones, who may have four or five postnomials after their name that has no direct relationship to their certification, but they are fellows in certain organizations, the uh, Society of Genealogists, or UGA, the Fellow of the Utah Genealogical Association. These people have earned the right to wear to have those uh, postnomials after their name because they have excelled in certain fields. Right. So we don't have to worry about the wide range. We can kind of focus in, would you say that CG is really the place where um, somebody who's new to this whole process, that's kind of where the starting point is, is that you might look to your getting your certification in genealogy? That's the jumping off point. Yeah. You you get qualified, you write articles, you do research, you, you do things that will qualify you as a CG, then you you take the material given to you by the board for certification and follow the directions that they give you, pass it back to them, and they have a way to judge whether you have or have not met the criteria. Right. I, I love the fact that more and more people are asking these kinds of questions. There seems to be, at least my perception is, a real growing interest 
that they they're craving to learn more and to be more accurate about the type of process that they're using and they're sourcing their, you know, they're recording their sources. How are you finding the membership at APG going and in your local society? Well, I'm also with the uh, APG Florida chapter, and we have about 26 members here in Florida out of about 70 total members of APG in Florida. We have a Florida chapter, and we meet quarterly, uh, and this quarter we met by electronic means, Ah. visual meeting, and it worked great. And then we will have another meeting in November latter part of November, where we will meet at our Florida State Genealogical Society. And we have our meeting there. We were going to do an Ancestors Roadshow as a courtesy to the Florida State Genealogical Society. This we've been doing for three years now, and it's worked great. It, it gives more people a reason to want to belong to APG. And I've seen APG grow from about uh, 1,500 members to over 2,200 members in, in the years I've been associated with it. And I'm the uh, booth manager at the various national uh, conferences. The next one being, um, wow, I go to so many of my kick. Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, you're talking about NGS or FGS? Right. They have okay. one FGS, one NGS. Then we move to Springfield, Illinois. And then uh, sometime in the future, we're coming to Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, these are places where we hold national conferences. And APG has a booth set up so you can come personally inquire from some of our members. How would it benefit me to be a member of APG? Pick up some literature, read it, and come back later and sign on the dotted line and pay your membership dues. And where can they find APG online? It's APGEN.org. That stands for Association of Professional Genealogists.org or we say appgen.org. Great. So you can head to appgen.org and and get information, learn more about what they offer as far as the benefits of being a member. And I assume that they could register even online? They could. They certainly could. They also, you'll see a listing of all the other members by state or by specialty or by name. If you happen to look for me, you can look for my last name. And I think I'm the only one who has a last name of Davidson. Well, it's a great way to make connections and uh, get some, you know, collaboration going. Absolutely. That's the whole collaborative genealogy is the big thing in the future. Yeah. I help you. Exactly. Well, now we've talked about the professional work that you do and certainly the work that you do um, with the APG. Um, But I'm always interested in, in talking with somebody who has been doing genealogy for a long time on a personal level. What do you find? What keeps you motivated? And on a personal level, what has it meant to you to research your own ancestors? Well, one thing that has always been a wonderful thing to me is genealogy has always been a challenge. to, And it may be to some people, but maybe not to the greater degree as it is to me. Because I'm always pursuing another line, another facet of my genealogy. I'm a member of the... Uh, the um, uh, Sons of the American Revolution. I'm the local registrar. These things just keep me motivated, trying to do more genealogy for more people and my own personal genealogy. I just recently got back from a trip to Jamestown, Virginia, where I attended the Chandler Family Association. 
one of my ancestors is John Chandler. And these are things I'm just motivated all the time to keep going and looking for more. And every time I get another job from another client, I can't put it down until I've got some headway made in it. It's, I sometimes find myself working half a night. Oh, I know the feeling. <laughs> you know the feeling. Huh? I just cannot lay it aside until I know I have at least picked up a few bits and pieces where I can find out it will be worthwhile to continue pursuing this. And then I put it aside and let some U.S. mail take effect. Exactly. What prompted your original interest in your own personal genealogy? It was quite a, a, kind of a challenge. My mother-in-law of that day was bragging about how great her ancestors were. <laughs> and I just couldn't be still when she started telling me that. I headed to our local historical library, and I felt ashamed of myself because when I got back to her, I said it was a lot more than you knew, and it, it made me almost ashamed to find out that she didn't know the half of it. <laughs> her ancestors were very prominent Georgia legislators and, and officials of the state of Georgia, and she didn't even know that. She just knew that they were prominent people in the community, mm-hmm. and that sort of was a jumping-off point for me. Uh, I began to search my own personal genealogy, and of course not quite as famous as hers were, but I've been very pleased with what I've found. I've uh, found a lot about my family in North Alabama. When I go up there, I have to meet with my family and talk to them about what's going on and doing the printout of my family tree charts, and they're all excited about it. We have an annual Davidson family reunion in August of every year. And it's grown from a handful to almost 200 people. And I hope I have a, a reason for that being that they can find their interest in genealogy through my research. You, you almost feel like you're restoring these people back to the family. You know, we, we hear the stories and we have that vague recollection or things we've heard. But, you, you know, when we go back and really pull those names out and who these people were, um, it's nice to know that they're remembered. And hopefully we'll all be remembered too, right? I hope so. I hope that I will leave enough, I guess I could use the term paper trail, that someone may be able to pick it up someday and say, this is what he did. Let's see if I can improve on it a little bit. It wouldn't hurt my feelings at all. Exactly. Oh, Elvie, it's been really a joy to chat with you today. And I appreciate you sharing your professional as well as personal insight with all of us here on the show. Well, thank you, Lisa. I enjoy your podcast. I have a an iPhone that hangs on my hip and I put a Bluetooth set headset on when I go to the gym and I listen to your program two or three times before I digest it all, just working out in the gym in the morning. Excellent. Now, if I could just find a way to get the benefits of the workout, even though I'm the one doing the talking, <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> Maybe osmosis. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks again. Well, thank you. And uh, if I can help you in any way, Just give me a shout, and I hope to try to get you down here in Florida in the next couple of years. Would love to do it. And everybody listening, keep an eye out. Next time you head out to one of the national conferences, head over to the APG booth. You'll probably find Alfie there. Say hi. You got it.
Boy, it was great to talk to somebody who's very knowledgeable about that process. I hope that this interview has gotten you started and started to answer some of those questions that you're having about the whole concept of becoming a certified genealogist and what's involved. And it's wonderful to know that you can become a member of the Association of Professional Genealogists without being certified yet. What better way to tap into the brain trust of the folks who have already been through the process? So I encourage you to get involved with APG. It's really a wonderful organization. And I wanted to let you know also that when I was recently at the Family History Expo in Pleasanton, California, I picked up an interesting little flyer that I wanted to tell you about. It's here from the Salt Lake Community College, and they have a genealogy certificate program. It says here, as you discover your ancestry, you will learn the proper use of genealogical records and sources through hands-on research. Don't live in Salt Lake? Not a problem. All of our courses are available online. Visit our website for a listing of courses as well as in-person workshops. So if you would like to check out an online option for a genealogy certificate, head on over to slcc.edu slash continuing ed. And there's a phone number here. It's 801-957-5200. And when you get to the continuing ed, you'll just click on genealogy. You can contact Kathy Johnson, that's J-O-N-S-S-O-N, by email at kathy.johnson at slcc.edu. And I encourage you to do that. If you've got some questions, check them out and see what they have to offer. And we'll be updating this topic, certainly in the future. There's lots to cover. And um, I know that Suzanne had more questions about it and what to do about hiring a professional genealogist. So lots of great topics for upcoming podcast episodes. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for joining me for the Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 101. You wouldn't believe how much stuff I had that I wanted to cover today. (laughs) And it just seems like it's flown by. It's gone very long, but lots of great things going on in the world of genealogy. And uh, don't worry, I've hung on to the ones we didn't get to in this episode. And we'll be covering those in all the episodes to come. I am really looking forward to 2011. And I have something in the works that some of you have been asking for. Hmm. Dare I say it? We'll put it this way. If you have an Android phone, this might make you happy. That's all I'm going to say, because I can't tell you for sure until it's all done. (laughs) But there's news a coming. So stay tuned for that. And of course, if you have any questions or comments, you can reach me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.